If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Thomas Jefferson. He'll be answering our call on June 6th, 1823, at the age of 80 years old. Thomas Jefferson is almost always listed in the top 10 of U.S. presidents because of his enormous contribution to the creation of the United States. Yet, Jefferson's life is filled with contradictions that can be uncomfortably explained once you understand his pragmatic approach to life. As an example, to create additional income, Jefferson worked slaves as young as 10 in his nail factory. Those that excelled in the tedious work received extra clothes and food and were promoted to skilled labor. Those that didn't became field hands. As horrifying as this may sound, in his practical mind, this would be a sensible way to determine how a young slave might be most useful as they got older. But before you think a man capable of such acts is devoid of conscience and an empty shell where morals could not exist, history makes it clear that he knew that slavery was an abomination. In fact, he makes three valiant political attempts to end slavery, including text that was stricken from the Declaration of Independence. He hated slavery, yet he owned 600 slaves during his lifetime. Some of them were his own children with Sally Hemings, children that he may have sold at some point. It has been said that Jefferson was one of the most educated of all U.S. presidents and did so much good for our nation, yet... It is hard to see him as a hero or a villain because he is definitely both. However, I don't believe it was his intent to hurt others, nor do I think that these decisions were for personal gain. As president, I believe he did the best for our nation, even though it might have negatively impacted someone else. As you listen, I think you'll understand why his life has and will forever be debated by historians. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and wolf hunters everywhere, I give you Thomas Jefferson. Hello, is that you, President Jefferson? Yes, sir. And are you Mr. Dean that I've heard so much about? I am, sir. Thank you for taking this time to speak with me today. As you know, I'm talking to you from the 21st century. The device that you are holding in your hand right now, it's called a smartphone, and it allows you to speak with allows us to speak as if we were walking on the grounds next to each other in Monticello. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And, sir, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before I do, I understand that this introduction is kind of strange, and I was wondering if you might have some questions for me first. Well, first of all, Mr. Dean, I can tell you that Mr. Madison, my dear friend in Orange County, has given you the highest recommendations and encouraged me to carry on a conversation with you. And I am very much looking forward to this conversation. He said that you had a very much a deep interest into the origins of our nation and that your insights as well as your questions are quite penetrating. So I am looking forward to it. Now, before we begin, sir, 
may I offer you a glass of wine? I have some white wine, some Hermitage from the Rhone Valley in France, and I was wondering if you would like to share some. Well, I will tell you that I would love a glass of any wine you have. The thing is about the device that you have, it allows us to speak, but unfortunately there's no way for me to reach in and grab the glass. But I will tell you this. How about this? I'll have a glass of wine next to me as well, and we'll both have a glass of wine how we're talking. That'll probably loosen us both up anyhow. Excellent, sir. It appears from some of your remarks that perhaps you have been imbibing some wine previously. But in any case, I (laughs) certainly agree. We should be doing that. You tell me when you are ready for our opening toast, sir. I am ready for the toast. Do you have a toast prepared? I'm ready whenever you are. Well, I just want to compliment you for your deep interest and also for your willingness to endure stories and things that probably have no recognition to yourself and your family. But in any case, I am just delighted to have this opportunity. So I toast you, sir. Well, I I accept it, and thank you very much. And I appreciate the high praise that you have given me. The conversation that I had with Mr. Madison was extraordinary. And since talking to him about speaking with you, I've been eagerly awaiting this time. When people know and learn about you, Everybody knows all these great accomplishments that you've had. You wrote the Declaration of Independence, and you were the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, and all these different accomplishments. But the thing that I want to hear about first is I heard that you were a hunter at one time and that you used to hunt wolves. Is that true? (laughs) Did Mr. Madison tell you that story? Oh, my goodness. I did not know he would tell such stories. (laughs) Yes, in fact, I did. I had a very dear friend, and I should tell you the story how we met, but named Mr. Dabney Carr. And Mr. Carr and I had seen in one of the local stores in Milton, a small town along the Rivanna, which is in my Albemarle County, and we saw that there was a rifle for sale. And I believe it was approximately four pounds and some pence. I cannot remember the exact amount. And so I did what many young men do, probably not in your own culture, I'm not certain, but I went to my father and I asked him if he would give me four pounds to purchase the rifle. And he laughed and he told me that I am responsible for your upkeep and your safety, sir, but if you want such an implement, you have to go out and earn the wherewithal to acquire it. And I then went back and told my friend Dabney, And I said, we have to earn it ourselves. And he told me, well, do you know that I have seen a poster for a four-pound bounty on wolves? Because wolves at that time were very difficult on our livestock. And we determined that if we could cut off the ears and the tail of an adult wolf, we would have our rifle. So in any case, we went up to what is called Wolf Pit Mountain and... It was, I swear, it was the coldest night I have ever endured. And by the end of the night, we thought we would certainly come across one on the game trail, but nothing came across. And what had happened was I had gotten bacon, and I had wrapped the bacon around an iron spring. And I was hoping that the bait would be consumed by the wolf, and then we would follow his markings, shall we say. And... 
that night, nothing happened. We had to scare away the raccoons and the possums. So he was determined to go home. And I said, just let us go on, see how far we can go, and, tell them, and we won't go another evening. But late that afternoon, there came the largest wolf I had ever seen. And we remained in hiding. And he consumed that thing, that bait that we had for him. And we followed his bloody spore and ultimately dispatched him, cut off his ears and his tail, and took them down to the store, and we acquired that rifle. I wish I had that rifle to this day. I don't even know where it is. So, but was that the only, was that the only time you did it one time to get money for the rifle? Well, no. Of course, every young man here would hunt all the time. I would certainly recommend hunting and fishing for everyone. It requires not as much the physical side of one's requirements and stress upon them, but it does require uh, a mental understanding of the prey that you are going after. And it gives you an understanding of the natural world that you wouldn't otherwise have. So I, I have always engaged in hunting and fishing. When you're talking about learning to wait for your prey and everything you're describing, I mean, you could argue that that, that sort of patience and even looking for your prey, had, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about politics in a way, a little bit. Now, sir, you're sounding like Dr. Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when you said you would cut the ears and the tail off, so then what did you do with the rest of the wolf? <laughs> Uh, I am sure that the vultures had a delightful time. (laughs) But in any case, if I may digress a bit, may I tell you, and not that I mean to go into such things, because it has no interest, of course, to the political issues you're discussing. But in any case, the way I met Mr. Carr was of interest. And perhaps future politicians should have known this story. I'd love Um, to hear it. I had the opportunity when... I was growing up, I was about 12 years old, and I went to the home of Dr. Thomas Walker, which is called Castle Hill. It is located here in the southwest mountains of Virginia, and we would go to the Reverend Moray's school. Uh, He was a correct classical scholar, and he taught us reading and writing and ciphering and Latin and Greek, and I must admit, all of the boys certainly enjoyed 12 o'clock each day because he would let us outside and we would engage in a series of games. And my most enjoyable activity was what is called quarter racing. Now, I understand that you are from the far western territories. Is that correct, Mr. Dean? Yes, I definitely am. I'd be far west from where you are, yes. Well, you would be familiar. Have you heard the term quarter horse? I've heard the term quarter horse, but I don't understand exactly what you're doing with quarter racing unless you're just getting on horses and racing. Well, not exactly, sir. A quarter race, which we had perfected at Reverend Murray's school, you go from one point, you go about an eighth of a mile, and what we did is we had two trees, and a third boy would stand at the first tree, and he would launch the other two boys, and they would go to a second tree about an eighth of a mile away, and we would make the turn and see if we could come back and touch the first tree before the other boy. When you said you'd launch the other boys, what does that mean? It means he says the race has begun. Okay, all right. Okay, got it. So keep going. In any case, 
I was very proud of my status as the fastest quarter racer of all of the boys in the school. And one day, this new boy came to the school, and this was Dabney Carr. I had never met the young man. Now, I was not only an excellent rider, I was an excellent judge of horse flesh. And I could tell that his little colt was faster than my little filly. I could just see the way it moved. And I knew the day would come. And at first he was very shy. But finally, he comes up to me, puts his finger in my chest, and he says, Mr. Jefferson, I know you are the fastest of the quarter racers here among all the boys. I said, I am, sir. And he says, then I challenge you to a race. Now, as you would know, Mr. Dean, you can't back down in front of a challenge in front of the other boys. That, no, that absolutely not. That is not, ex- not acceptable. Um, but I also did not want to lose my position as the fastest quarter racer. So I was in somewhat of a dilemma. So then I said, Mr. Carr, I accept your challenge. And as the challenge party, I will set the date, and we shall run on February 30th. And to this day, I am undefeated in quarter racing. He had no idea that there was no such date as February 30th. (laughs) Oh, outwitting and outsmarting even from the young age, huh? So let that be your own interpretation, sir. (laughs) So that's amazing. So what happened, whatever happened with Dabney Carr? Did you guys remain friends? What happened with him? Oh, we did. He actually married my sister. I am very sad to say he had a very short life. He actually joined me being elected to the House of Burgesses by the freeholders of Albemarle County. When we were discussing the controversies of that time with the royal government and such matters, he took a very active part. Anytime I could encourage him to stand up and address the group, the House of Burgesses, I certainly did, and he was very impressive, but sadly, he passed several years later, even before the revolution was completed. So he he rests in my cemetery at Monticello to this day. He So he's buried on the grounds? He is buried at Monticello in the family cemetery. He will be, and we had made a pledge to one another that we would be buried together at this location where we would sit and discuss our futures and all of our opinions on many things. And I'm under the assumption that since you guys were good friends, that every February 30th, you put flowers on his grave, right? Let's say February 29th, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That's one that's going to actually happen. Gotcha. So you had mentioned when you were talking about the, uh, the wolves, you had said something that along the lines of that it gets you in touch with the natural world. You'd use that word. And I know that you loved your books and were very interested in lots of different topics. And it seems like the way that you said that natural world, that means something to you. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? Well, I don't know the best way to say it. I think if I were looking back at my life, and I know that there are some sects that believe in a what is called reincarnation, I believe the term is. Well, I... I truly wish I could be reincarnate as a natural philosopher. Nature had intended me for the tranquil pursuits of science, and they are a delight to me. And I have tried to encourage others who have great talents and are in positions to 
take advantage of their both their education and their interests and pursue rational exploration of what actually explains assorted phenomena. One of the, shall I say, philosophical conflicts that I have with a number of people is, and this has started from the beginning of the history of mankind, humans do tend to want explanation for why things occur. And they will come up with all kinds of explanations. And many of them sound quite reasonable and commonsensical. But as Mr. Francis Bacon said in several centuries ago, they have not been proven by the actual events that take place. And it is up to us to investigate and determine what is causing, if A and B take place, does this result in C or some other phenomena? And if you vary one of these phenomena, what are the changes? And this is something that we are just now beginning to open up to our general population. Now, I don't know, sir, if you have had the opportunity to travel in Europe. Are you familiar at all with Europe? I am very familiar. I have traveled all throughout Europe. Oh, excellent. Excellent, sir. Well, then you would know that without question, the there is an aristocracy of knowledge among the Europeans. Their knowledge of the natural world is growing, and there are some stories that I have about such matters. But in any case, we are just beginning. We, of course, we have Mr. the late Mr. David Rittenhouse, who's wonderful, was a wonderful astronomer, and of course the late Dr. Franklin. But as far as spread of knowledge in the natural world, that is still slowly coming to be in this new world. So I am hopeful that it will accelerate over time. It's interesting how you, when you talked about reincarnation and you're saying that if you were reincarnated, that's the role that you would want to have. You'd want to be one of these people that was learning and maybe explaining why, what happens and the reasons or what causes what happens. And yet, when you look at how deep you were entrenched in the political system and just, it seemed, never got out of it, I mean, those two seem in almost in direct opposition. Like, one is this peaceful, it seems like this peaceful exploration for knowledge. And then, of course, politics is this dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's just, you know, so violent and so contentious. And it's incredible that if you would want to be a natural philosopher, how did you even get pulled into all of this politics? How did you even get interested in that? Because you didn't have to. You had money. You had land, didn't you? I had some good fortune without question. My father was not as wealthy as many of the Virginia planters because he had gone west to the Southwest Mountains and just short of the Blue Ridge. But I did have the fortune of having an inheritance to a degree. I would say, sir, that conflict I met many times, and I'm not going to go into all the particulars, if I may give you one story that reflects upon the opposition of the political world versus the natural world. I'm not sure you have ever heard of a man by the name of Henri Blanc. I didn't know if you had heard of his name. I don't think he is alive now, 
but he was when I was serving as Minister Plenipotentiary in Paris. And uh, Monsieur Blanc had developed this scheme of making what he called in, in French interchangeable parts. And he was doing it for muskets for the French army. And I was invited to go to his manufacturing site at, let's see, I think it was Le Atienne. And I went there and he laid out an entire assortment of parts to build a musket. And he says, you build it, sir. And I was fascinated. I have not built a musket before. And he said, well, pick any one of these parts over here and the locks. And the, then he had the stocks and the barrels and the trigger, triggering mechanism. And it took me, oh, I don't think, an hour to make a musket with wow. his, some instruction from him. And I thought this was the most fascinating thing. I'm not sure you're knowledgeable about gunsmithing, sir, but a gunsmith could take months to make a fine rifle. And here's someone who knows nothing about it, and I put it together in less than an hour. I couldn't believe it. So wow. that explains one side, sir. Now the politics. I wrote to then-Governor Patrick Henry, and I wrote to Secretary of War Henry Knox, as well as our Secretary John Jay. And I was saying, this is a wonderful development if we – could perfect it, we could acquire some formidable arms for our forces should we need them. They both rejected them. All three of them said, this is of no value to us. This can't be of any use. So I, could, I did not pursue it. This was prior to, this was, oh my goodness, let's see. That would have been in 85. So now it is 23, so you do the math, sir. So what was their argument? How come they couldn't see the value in that? They did not believe it was viable or could be actually be done. And they had not seen it done before, therefore it couldn't be done. And that was what they were reflecting, their people's and their culture view of such matters. Now, of course, since that time, 40 years later, I'm not sure you've heard, but there is oh, a Mr. Whitney from, I think he's from Connecticut, and he's no longer alive, but he pursued this method of interchangeable parts, and it has now become an aspect of manufacturing within America. So it took some additional time and some more convincing than I was able to do at the time, but without question, the politics of the matter did, shall we say, create a blockade to progress. Yeah, no, you can actually see the bottleneck that it created. This is really a good example. I wonder if this is just as simple as how human nature, people are so hesitant to change. This is the way we've always done it, so this is the way we're going to keep doing it. Do you think that had something to do with it? Oh, I am sure human nature has been consistent throughout the ages, sir. Yeah, that's for sure. With you talking about all the different things that you're curious about. You mentioned astronomy, and of course you've said the natural world over and over. And then yet you've also got this very pragmatic side where you're able to deal with people in the political arena. You've got a very complete, it seems like a very complete personality for the life that you lived. And it seems to me 
that when I listen to you talk, I mean, just barely into our conversation, that you would be absolute lifelong best friends with Dr. Franklin. Oh, my goodness, sir. I admire Dr. Franklin both up close in companionship and from afar. I had read some of what he had written prior to our meeting in Philadelphia during the Second Continental Congress. But upon meeting him, I just, I don't, I'm not even sure how to describe his effect upon me. I just, if I might, sir, I just, I don't mean to get off track, but as I had mentioned, I was Minister Plenipotentiary in Paris, and he had preceded me all during those Revolutionary War years. He was our link to the French government and to the king, of course, and he suffered some much criticism, actually, while he was over there. And even when I came over there to finally succeed him, no one could replace the great Dr. Franklin in France, I assure you. But I did have to succeed him. And I had daily visits with him and confidential conversations. And the criticisms that politicians, particularly in America at that time, were making were so without foundation. The fact is, his temper was so amicable and conciliatory and his conduct so rational, and he never urged impossibilities upon the French. And even when things were inconvenient for them in the short term, he would be attentive and moderate to their challenges, as well as his, our own challenges. And that is why he was called subservient to the French. Well, once I was over there, I quickly saw that his reasonable disposition was sensible that advantages are not at all to be on one side of any political discussion and debate, particularly between countries as different as ourselves with France, and that yielding a bit of what is just and liberal, and then obtaining liberality and justice on behalf of both parties produces a mutual influence and a positive relationship that was sustained all the while that Dr. Franklin was there. And I just, I cannot say enough about how Dr. Franklin was. May I interrupt with a, a short story? Please, this is super interesting. Keep going. Well, I will offer this as an explanation. Since we were talking about the natural world a moment ago, there was a, the finest natural philosopher in the world uh, of that time during my service in France was a Count Buffon. And Count Buffon, was a man who had more knowledge and understanding of the flora and fauna of the world than anyone that I was familiar with. His books, his illustrations, his knowledge was amazing, and I would always want to get Count Buffon's works. However, there was one problem. He had a theme, and this theme was pronounced in all of his works. And basically that theme was that Due to a number of conditions, all of the flora in the New World and all of the fauna of the New World was inferior in size and productivity to that 
of the old world. Now, do you get the implication of this, sir, for uh, humankind? Absolutely. I don't know what the implication is, but there's obviously been some sort of change in the environment. He is basically saying if the flowers and animals are inferior, then the humans of the new world must oh. be inferior to the old world. Interesting. And all of us recognize this. Well, during one of my first visits in Paris, Dr. Franklin had taken me to a gathering in Paris at one of the great madames of the Parisian society. And we were sitting there at the table with a man named Abbe Renal. Now, the Abbe Renal was a great proponent of Count Buffon's theories. And he had these four Americans across from him in the table. Dr. Franklin, my own secretary, Mr. William Short, who was anything but short. Mr. William Humphrey, who was also a substantial gentleman, and myself, who, though not broad, was a bit taller than most. And across the table sat Abbe Renal expounding upon his theories, or Dr. Count Buffon's theories. And with that, Dr. Franklin merely looks down the table at the other three of us, and immediately all four of us stood up, and Abbe Renal was but a mere shrimp of a man, and everyone in the hall began to laugh. <laughs> because that was the proof of what he was saying? It at least made it, its point, sir. <laughs> that, by the way, I've never heard this man's name, this Count Buffon. Is that how you say his name? Yes, sir. When you're talking about this theory that everything now is not as good as everything then. It's great to look at the flowers and say they're different and the animals, but what more can you tell me about that? What other reasons specifically did he feel that way? Do you know? Well, he attributed, as I understand through the reading, he attributed to various levels, the high levels of humidity, so he said. Of course, he has never been out to your territory at all, of course, nor have I for that matter. But in, in any case, that was his rationale. After I began to understand the theory a little bit better and began to know the society a bit better, I had shipped to Count Buffon a series of animals that had been gathered for me. I'd even commissioned General John Sullivan of New Hampshire to go out and kill and skin the largest moose he could find and to ship it to France. And when it did arrive, I left it at Count Buffal's home because he was not there when I went to deliver the crates of all of these specimens. And so I left them in the foyer and the poor servant, oh, he was mortified. He could not believe what I was, particularly the moose skin. Now, keep in mind, the transit was excessive across the Atlantic, and it was invested with its own fauna, shall I say. Yeah. And we laid it out in the foyer, and I left. And it was a fortnight later that I received a notice, and this same servant comes to me, and he knocks upon the door, and he hands me a card. And it was signed by Count Buffon. And he said, I may be mistaken. <laughs> because your moose was huge. <laughs> it was huge, sir. Oh, it's all a matter of perspective, I suppose. That is 
gosh, that is so interesting. What a bold person to make some sort of statement like that and then say it in front of everybody and say, look, you guys are all fools compared to the people that lived before you. I mean, that is a <laughs> bold statement. So, well, now I understand that you have some interest in some of the events that have taken place in my early days. Is that accurate? I definitely do. I want to ask you, before we get to those, I want to ask you about one more thing about Dr. Franklin. Whenever you ask anybody a question about Dr. Franklin, they always have praise. He's fantastic. But the man had to have some faults, and you spent so much time with him. What were some of his faults? Faults? Well, sir, he was human. I hesitate to characterize anyone's faults. I am not attempting to uh, raise myself on somebody else's weakness. And I have found that kind of discussion and logic gives one a false sense or an attempt at confidence for themselves. So I would recommend that you begin to read Dr. Franklin. I can tell you another event that took place. And yes, please. It, 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 it was with the same Abbe Renal. I went to a, another gathering, and the Abbe, of course, everyone in France just adored Dr. Franklin. And the Abbe Renal began to talk about the morality of the new world compared to the old world. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm hesitate to laugh, but I just see it in my mind so clearly. He was talking, and he mentioned the events of Polly Baker, and Dr. Franklin perked up immediately, and he said, as I have read the events of Polly Baker. She was somewhat profligate in her behavior, and she had a number of children by assorted men, and she was brought up on charges of licentiousness in the court in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, I believe. And so the Abbe is talking about this, and he said they're far more, shall I say, lacking of moral rectitude than we in Europe. <laughs> and okay. Dr. Franklin, by this time, is beginning to laugh. And everyone is staring at him at the table. And the Abbe finally says, Dr. Franklin, why are you laughing? And he said, as a young man, I had begun to publish a paper within Philadelphia, and sometimes I needed to have an interesting story. And the story of Polly Baker is one that I made up out of whole cloth. Oh, and my. There was, it was not true at all. And the entire group began to laugh again at the Abbe Renal, but the Abbe had a comeback. He said, sir, I uh, said, ladies and gentlemen, I would rather hear a story from Dr. Franklin than the truth from other men. <laughs> Dr. Franklin is the definition of the saying, never let the truth stand in the way of a good story. That's for sure. <laughs> well oh. said, sir. Well said. Oh, my gosh. That is hilarious. Gosh, that's super good. Well, I'll tell you what. When I told people that I was going to be talking to you, I mean, they just rattled the questions off that they wanted to hear from you. And one of the going a little bit into the future here, one of the things that I thought that kind of surprised me, and I didn't know this, but when you were writing, I'd like to hear a little bit about the Declaration of Independence and what led up to the writing of that, and you being basically the person responsible for it. I understand there was like a committee, but you were responsible for it. But the thing that surprised me most is the fact that after 
it was written that they cut out a big chunk of it. Looking at how the document ended, considering the effort that you put into that and the brilliance that you put behind that, people coming in and cutting out a, a quarter of that had to be maddening. And I guess I'd like to hear a little bit of, about that, what was cut out and how you got to the point where that was writing. Just, I'd love to hear that. Well, sir, interesting that you remark upon that. I had been involved with Virginia politics for, by that time, I had entered the House of Burgesses in 69, as I had mentioned with Mr. Carr later. Could you yeah. clarify what the House of Burgesses is for somebody that might not know exactly what that is? Because that wouldn't be really common to many people listening to this. Yes. Under our original charter, under King James I, oddly enough, of all people, we had the opportunity to secure the limits of our colonies, British colonies, and we had recognition of legislative bodies, the legitimacy of legislative bodies, subject to the prerogative of the king in these days. And keep in mind, Virginia is starting to form in 1607, I believe, with the beginning of Jamestown. And in time, we formed a representative assemblage, and I think that was in 1619 in Williamsburg called the House of Burgesses. And it was there that we began to exercise our, what we felt was granted by the charters and we felt was legitimate and our work began in that early time. But as you well know, sir, over time, the British began to say, these colonial legislatures, of which the House of Burgesses was one, of course, each colony had their own, were now taking steps that they did not agree with, which ultimately created the situation requiring our independence. It was the best summary I can offer to you is that which, have you ever heard of something called the Stamp Act, sir? Most definitely, yes. Have you ever? Ah, all right then. Let me remind you that during that time, our people reacted so strongly against the Stamp Act because of the various factors that were going on and the economic impact, our people were so angry and their protestations forced the House of Parliament to rescind the Stamp Act. And this is 10 years before the declaration was written. And we felt we had scored a victory. Well, the House of Parliament was not interested in being subdued by these colonists. So at the same time, they passed what is called the Declaratory Act. Essentially, it's said that the king and parliament have the right to restrain any individual or any legislative body in any case whatsoever. Now, what did we do about that once we learned of it? We did nothing. It passed into history, as they say, until it was visited upon us, particularly in the beginning stage in Massachusetts. Okay. Now, from that point, sir, I was asked in June of 75 to join the Second Continental Congress. And 
I was immediately assigned to a committee with Mr. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, and he was writing a pamphlet on the necessity of taking up arms because Lexington had already occurred. We'd already had the affair of the Cedars in Canada. We had, by this time, Long Island was becoming the point of contention where General Washington had taken his troops. We had Moores Creek in North Carolina and Great Bridge in Virginia. So all of these had taken place before there was any declaration, but the attitude of the people was inflamed by this time. And to me and to many of the others at the Second Continental Congress, a declaration of independence was not stating something new. It was merely explaining what was already going on. This was not something that we broke away on that July 4th when the Second Continental Congress approved the document. This had been going on for over a year. I never thought about this, but the, what you're saying is the declaration wasn't a declaration that this is just about to happen. You're declaring, we just want to let you know this has already happened. I never yes. thought of it that way. That's interesting. Please keep going. In any case, when I arrived, I was assigned to Mr. Dickinson's committee, and my addition or the draft that I gave him was far too forward, keeping in mind that there were a number of colonies, oh my goodness, New York foremost among them, and Pennsylvania, New Jersey, let's see, Delaware and Maryland and South Carolina, were, they were not yet matured for falling from the mother tree. And, but once, I think, I'm not certain of the date, you would have to examine this, but Mr. Richard Henry Lee of Westmoreland County here in Virginia was directed by his constituents to make a motion for separating from Great Britain. And he did so in early June of 76. Now, immediately we knew that these colonies were not up to the point of forwardness and zeal for the occasion, but communication was flying among the colonies and we felt they would ripen. And so the Second Continental Congress formed themselves into three basic committees. One was to determine the structure and the responsibilities of the various, now we are no longer colonies in our mind, of the various states and how we would confederate together. And the second committee was to ask for alliance from France, from Spain, and from Canada, and the third committee was to place into our people's minds the understanding of why we were doing what we were doing, and I was assigned to this committee with a gentleman by the name of Mr. Adams, whom I believe you have heard of. Yes. And Mr. Livingston, Mr. Sherman, as well as Dr. Franklin. And it was at that point that they asked, that I make a formal declaration and that I submit that to this committee, which I did. Now, when I drew the document, it took me many days to deal with this while I was in apartments in Philadelphia, and I submitted it 
individually to both Mr. Adams and Dr. Franklin. They interlined two or three corrections in their own hand on the draft that I had submitted to them. Then from that, I made a fair copy, and I submitted it to our committee, and from there it went unaltered to the Congress at large. And that is the point that you were making, that it was at that point that changes were made to the document. Now, when you said it took me many days, my head is spinning because we're talking about the, a document that people have said that this may be the most significant document in the history of the world. And it took you a few days. I'm curious how many days it took you to write it. I cannot remember the exact number of days. Sir. I think it was 10, 12 days. Not exactly certain, sir. Wow. Gosh, I mean, just imagine if somebody gave you a month to do something. Who knows what you could do? <laughs> That's pretty incredible. Okay, so then, yeah, so then they, Mr. Adams and Dr. Franklin, they had some suggestions, and then you put it in front of the Congress, and but then they started cutting things out and significant things. My yes. understanding is that correct? That is correct. Dr. Franklin saw that I was very discomfited at the changes that were being recommended and those that were made, and he came over and told me the story of John Thompson, the Hatter. <laughs> I remember that story. Basically, he said that there was a merchant in London who would write upon his sign, John Thompson, maker of hats for ready money. And various people came upon onto him. And over time, he eventually ended up with a picture of a hat and his name on it. And that is similar to the editing process that went on from my viewpoint. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it took me a minute for, that, for me to get that, but that's hilarious. I wonder if you could ever get through a single conversation with Franklin without being told a story like that. Unlikely. Un yeah. un unlikely. So uh, my understanding is that one of the sections that everybody agreed to take out was that there were some very strong words said to King George at the time. Can you yes, speak on that? there were. Well, I wanted to let both sides of the Atlantic know that we had not assumed what the other European powers and Great Britain had always assumed, that the right of government was divinely assigned from the Lord above, that no the source of power of government came derived from the people itself. And this was, this was not something that I came up with. It, my task was a, it was a much different. I'm, I wasn't set out to find new principles or new arguments never before thought of. I was, wanted to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and to justify ourselves in the independent stand we were compelled to take. I wasn't trying to be original in principle or sentiment, yet I didn't really copy anything from any particular or previous writing. I was trying to express the American mind and give that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. Its authority rests only in what I could harmonize from both letters and essays and 
conversations and books from Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, and Sidney. I was my task was to make sure the American and the European audiences would understand why are we taking this step? Is it just for power? Is it just for money? I did not, nor did the Second Continental Congress, want that understanding passed. We wanted them to understand we were not subjects of the king. We were a people that had to make our own decisions in the form of government we selected. Gosh, that's incredible. So the reason, the idea of clarifying the desires of the American people, it seems like that a lot of that was left in. But as you were trying to make this point, I think what you're saying was taken out is the part about maybe attacking the king directly. Is that what I'm hearing? I did. I attacked the king directly, and I was supported in that point where I was corrected was making any reference to the British people themselves. And I did acknowledge that for purposes of persuasion, that was probably not best. And Dr. Franklin and Mr. Adams concurred in that with the majority of the Second Continental Congress. Now, when you say Dr. Franklin concurred, that makes sense. But when you say Mr. Adams, John Adams concurred... It didn't appear to me that he was too concerned about anybody's feelings in the way that he said something a lot of times. He, <laughs> those two are completely different. They have nothing in common, do they? Except that they're good with their words. <laughs> you, sir, are – you have also understood a bit about Mr. Adams that most people would not. Mr. Adams was the colossus of the Second Continental Congress. Make no mistake, we would not be – where we are to this day without the force, the logic uh, of Mr. Adams. He was truly the colossus of that Congress. And he concurred with things that made logical sense and would be effective, shall we say, in persuasion. And in this case, as you say, he wasn't always had a felicity for speaking, but the force of his logic could not be ignored. And it is in that realm that he persuaded others, and he could be persuaded when he felt that another's argument was valid. He wasn't clinging to some self-interest, as many of the representatives of the colonies were. He felt that it would be best, in this case, the declaration to address only the king. That's very interesting. I'm assuming that John Adams, if he were listening right now and he heard you considering how short and round he was and you referred to him as a colossus, that he would take that as a great compliment. And I'm wondering, as you describe him as a colossus, at that Continental Congress. I've never heard him described that way, but I suppose the thing that makes him so powerful is the fact that when he says something, the words that he says and the words that he writes are so well thought out and that he's just right most of the time. And even if he is stubborn or obstinate or whatever you want to call him, 
it's hard to argue with somebody that's right. Am I on the right track? <laughs> yeah, well said, sir. Well said. That's interesting. Okay, so let me ask you. You let me go back. You were talking about the about the three committees a little bit ago. That you broke into three committees, and you were on the committee to explain to the people the purpose of the Declaration of Independence. And then there was one of the committees that was setting up the structure of the states, and then you said one that was working on the alliances with Spain, Canada, and France. Now, most people in my time know that we were able to come to an arrangement or create an alliance with France, and they jumped into the revolution, and obviously that was a very good thing for the American Revolution. But I guess I didn't understand that there was a whole committee that was working towards doing the exact same thing for Canada and Spain. So was there somebody in Canada and Spain that was doing what Dr. Franklin was doing in France? The initial efforts were put toward those territories, in Spain's case, countries, for different reasons. First of all, the Spanish have no affection for the English, I assure you. And there was a history and I believe it began before the Spanish Armada. There was a history of antipathy between those two countries, and we thought that we could capitalize for whatever purposes our new effort at independence, perhaps Spain could be of assistance to us. That did not go as well as we had hoped. In any case, Canada, we felt, would share some of our concerns as a colony of Great Britain. And we thought that they, too, would also feel that they wanted to break away from Great Britain. But as particularly Dr. Franklin, and, and I, he went to a committee. I am not certain of the exact details, but he was involved in a group that attempted to communicate with the Canadian people, but that did not work out as we thought. You know, I suppose I didn't really thought about it that way because the Canadian people, if they were going to break away from Great Britain, that would have been, I mean, it's not the easiest thing to break away from your mother country. Your whole world <laughs> is turned upside down. It's amazing that we pulled yes. it off. Yes, absolutely. Said, you had said that the Spanish don't have a particular affection for the English. And when you said that, I immediately thought, well, who are the people that have affection for the English? <laughs> Do you have a list? Because I don't well, have that list. We, uh, shall I say this, sir, and our conversation is going so well. What I'm going to do, with your permission, Dr. Dunglison, my own physician, recommended that I have a glass of wine. And I think as our conversation goes, I think I'm going to double his recommendation. Is that <laughs> satisfactory, sir? I'll do the same thing. Yeah, that sounds great. Do you need a minute to pour? Oh, yes. One second. Take your time. Now. So. Now we both have the fuel to continue. Ah, the fuel to continue. Very good. You know, it's perfect, too, that we're talking about drinking right now because everybody who is listening to right, this right now and is not traveling but is actually in their homes listening to this, they're probably also drinking, and they're thinking, all right, enough already. When are you going to ask him about Sally Hemings? But I'm not going to ask you about that yet. But as you can probably imagine, uh, the world does have some questions about that. But I don't want to ask about that yet. What a life Thomas Jefferson lived. 
One minute he's a boy cutting ears off of wolves, and the next he's writing one of the most significant documents in world history. I know you're probably waiting to hear what he has to say about Sally Hemings, and that is coming at the end of the next episode. As I'm leading up to that moment, I felt very uncomfortable asking him about this, though, and wished that I had asked it earlier, because Jefferson is very easy to like, and by the time I bring it up, we had excellent rapport. But once that question was asked, the mood changed quickly. I was totally surprised by the answer I got, but in hindsight, I should have expected it. In addition to discussing Sally Hemings and Aaron Burr, in the next episode, he's going to talk about the Louisiana Purchase. After listening to his explanation, I now understand what actually happened, and it was nothing like what I originally thought. I'm glad you're enjoying the Calling History podcast. Please subscribe now, and we'll see you next week for part two of Thomas Jefferson.